0: Fifty years ago, the United States and China signed the Shanghai communique recognizing that Taiwan is part of China. Today the United States prepares for war with China and uses Taiwan as a pretext. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's a founding director of the Confucius Institute at the university. He's also an organizer and activist with Pivot to Peace. Professor Ken Hammond, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Glad to be back, Brian. A few weeks ago, Ken, we spoke about China's role in Africa. It prompted a lot of interest in your thoughts, your discussions about it. Earlier, I did a seven-part series with you for the Socialist Program podcast about China's foreign policy during the history between 1949 and today. So we've covered a lot of topics, but there's a couple reasons we really wanted to have you back today. One is that in a month, a little bit more than a month, there is going to be the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-China-Shanghai communique that started the normalization of relations between the two countries. In that Shanghai communique, the U.S. acknowledges that Taiwan is part of China. And today, as we're speaking, the U.S. is preparing for major power conflict with China, and I'm talking about military conflict in the South China Sea, and taiwan is the pretext so a stunning turn of events 50 years later but this war drive by the united states is also accompanied by a growing chorus of media demonization of china including in the new york times on its front page comparing explicitly comparing china's response to covid with the actions of Adolf Eichmann and the other top leaders of of the Nazis during the period of fascism in Germany and continental Europe. So we want to also get to the media coverage. So there's a lot to talk about. But before we do, for those who might not know you, I want to have you explain your own connection to China. You're obviously teaching about China. You travel to China. You teach in China. You've been going there for a long time. Let's just go over your own connection to China.
1: Sure. I first went to China in the summer of 1982 as a student to work on on my Chinese language studies. I wound up staying for five years. I lived in Beijing from 82 to 87, working for an American educational organization that ran a study abroad program there and ran educational travel delegations to China. This is a period where China was just opening up to foreign tourism and travel. So that was my first time there, the longest time I've spent uh, sort of continuously in China. But I've gone back pretty regularly. I came back to the US in 87 and went to graduate school and got my master's and then my doctorate in Chinese history. And I've been teaching here at New Mexico State since 1994. As you mentioned, I I was involved with founding the Confucius Institute here at NMSU and was a co-director of that for about 12 years. Unfortunately, that program was shut down by our university under political pressure from the Department of Defense, as has happened at a number of campuses around the U.S. Uh, Part of this shifting more antagonistic orientation towards China by the American government. But I've written a lot about China. I'm basically a historian. I'm a historian of early modern China. The Ming Dynasty, 16th century in particular, is most of the work that I've done. But I'm very interested in contemporary China as well. And of course, I'm very concerned about the deterioration of the american perspective towards china obviously when i was there in the 80s it was a period of great promise of opening of closer relationships but now we've moved into a period of increasing hostility and I think that it's a very dangerous moment. The threat of conflict, including military conflict, grows apparently day by day. And so I've gotten more engaged with trying to push back against that campaign of demonization and against the, the kind of reckless and irresponsible behavior of uh, American politicians that threatens to provoke even more serious conflict where there's really no no good basis for where it would be against not only the the interests of the Chinese, but even those of the American people themselves.
0: The first time I went to China, and I was only there for a little bit, it was right after the Tiananmen Square events in early June 1989. But when I came back to the United States, all the other people on the plane that was coming to San Francisco, it seemed like almost everybody, were young Chinese people coming to go to school in the United States and the United States was welcoming them. Undoubtedly, the Chinese government knew that sending lots of their best and brightest students to the United States, a country that was far richer, far more affluent than China, which had this legacy of of poverty and underdevelopment that the revolution was trying to overcome, the Chinese government knew that a lot of the Chinese students might end up staying in the United States. But they thought, well, still will have the benefit of a lot of young Chinese people coming back from U.S. universities and Western universities. So during this period, not only did Chinese students come to the United States, but the Confucius Institute, of which you are a founding director at your university, was also promoting the Chinese language among Americans. And as you mentioned, the Confucius Institute at your university has been shut down. I would say it's a great loss for the university and a great loss for the community. But it's not just at your university. I believe every one of the Confucius institutes that existed in the United States at different academic settings has now been shut down as we've entered this new sort of anti-China period. Am I right about that?
1: I'm not sure that each and every one has been shut down, but certainly the majority of them have come under political pressure and many of them have been shut down. I saw just last week that the Confucius Institute at the University of Hawaii has been canceled, has been closed down. And that was almost kind of a flagship program. The work that was done there was very important in terms of the overall Confucius Institute initiatives across the country. And as you say, I mean, the Confucius Institutes, so we should be very clear about about what they were. They were designed to promote the study of Chinese language, they sent teachers from China who were certified as teachers of Chinese as a foreign language to come to American universities. Many of them were also able to go out and work in secondary schools and primary schools. Here in southern New Mexico, where you know New Mexico is a poor state and educational resources are at a premium here, this was a program that allowed us to have teachers both on campus here in New Mexico, down at the University of Texas in El Paso, at high schools, at elementary schools. When our program was up and fully running, we had around 3,000 students studying Chinese at various levels. Obviously, the kids in elementary school were doing it in a very different way from those at the university. But this was a real, real resource for our community. It allowed the public schools here to offer programming for students very relevant to their futures in a 21st century global economy without having to, you know, lay out major expenditures. The Chinese side provided the teachers, they provided money for their housing and their support, that's pumped money into the local economy as well as providing educational opportunities. So the Confucius Institute programs were basically, you know, kind of a winning situation for the university and for our community. And that was the program, not only around the United States, the Confucius Institutes exist all over the world. We also were able to run public programming. We had speakers, a speaker series. We ran a couple of conferences. And I want to be very clear that in no none of those activities, in no instance, did we ever face any political intimidation, any effort by the by the Chinese side to control or shape the message that we were putting forward. You know, this was not a a propaganda agency or something like that. It's been labeled that. It's been portrayed that way by certain elements here in the United States and elsewhere. But certainly our experience here at New Mexico State was never that. We had speakers in on all sides of controversial questions. And I think that that helped to educate people in this area in ways that would never have been possible had we not had the support of, of that program. So the loss of that, I think, is, is indeed, it's something that has hurt the communities here, it has hurt the university, and it has made our, our educational programming here much less valuable and relevant for the futures of young people who are you know trying to go out and, and make their way in an increasingly complex, globalized world. So I think that it's a very unfortunate development and one which was driven by political considerations the state department the department of defense the federal government has you know taken a a more hostile view a more mistrustful view towards china and they basically told our university that they could continue to receive you know defense research funding, which, of course, is hundreds of millions of dollars, or they could maintain the Confucius Institute, but we couldn't do both. And so obviously our administrators chose to shut down this program, which was benefiting students and the community here in southern New Mexico. But the sort of financial blackmail of the defense establishment meant that it was not
0: going to be sustainable for the university to keep that going. I'm glad we talked about this. In the interview, Ken, because, you know, the young people in China are learning English, not only English, but they're learning a second language. Here you have Americans given an opportunity to learn Mandarin, to learn Chinese and the U.S. government, the Defense Department that takes almost a trillion dollars a year, $770 billion this year just for the DOD, not to mention the other agencies that get other defense contracts, so-called defense contracts. But they're telling the people in New Mexico, such a poor state, don't you dare have your kids learn this second language. Don't learn Chinese because we live in the free world. Why would we want to speak a second language, especially the language of a country In which maybe one fifth or a quarter of the world's population lives. I mean, just a remarkable demonstration of of arrogance and militarism and how it's not just China that suffers from the new Cold War, so to speak. It's also the American people. It's like a blockade on, on information and knowledge
1: well i think that's a very important aspect of it that one of the things that allows american political and media elites to get away with the the often outrageous claims that are made about china about exploitation and oppression and you know policies towards ethnic communities and things like that and just the idea that china is some sort of authoritarian censorship state What allows these elites to make those claims is the overwhelming lack of knowledge and information about what life in China is actually like amongst the American people. A program like the Confucius Institute, which was bringing the opportunity to learn Chinese, giving Americans, young Americans especially, the opportunity to travel to China, to read about China, to read what Chinese people themselves are saying about their own society. In some ways, this threatens, I suppose you would say, the control over information which our government and our political elites want to maintain. They don't want the American people to know the truth about about what's happening in China. And so, you know, by sandbagging a program like the Confucius Institutes, they're able to, you know, kind of shore up for a while the wall of ignorance between the United States and China, which allows them to get away with their otherwise unsustainable campaign of propaganda against China.
0: Yeah, indeed. So China has the great wall to keep out foreign Invaders from <laughs> earlier times, and the US has its own great wall insisting that the American people remain ignorant I mean, literally ignorant about China or Chinese language really, a uh, despicable impact of the witch hunt against China. We're going to talk about that. Let's go now, though, Ken, to this upcoming anniversary, Shanghai Communique. It's undoubtedly going to be talked about in the media. Henry Kissinger had gone to China secretly in 1971. He started discussions with Zhou Enlai, the premier of the People's Republic of China, considered perhaps number two in China after Mao. And then in 1972, Richard Nixon. Yes, the fervent anti-communist Richard Nixon, who was leading the campaign against so-called Red China In the 1950s, after the revolution, he goes to China, he meets with Zhou Enlai, he meets with Mao, they're clinking champagne glasses, you know, earlier there was ping pong diplomacy, anyway, those openings to China. Let's talk about the Shanghai communique. From your point of view... What's the most important part? Just so people understand the structure of the communique, there's actually three communiques. There's one in 1972. There's another in 1979, I believe, when uh, Deng Xiaoping comes and meets with Jimmy Carter and full normalization of relations are established. And then another communique in the early 1980s. But let's talk about the language, the most important words in the Shanghai communique because they're not irrelevant for what's happening today.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Shanghai communique comes at the end of the two weeks that President Nixon spent in China, meeting with Mao Zedong, meeting with Zhou Enlai, meeting with other Chinese government leaders. Part of that time, most of the time was spent in Beijing, but they also went down to Shanghai and spent time there. And of course, that's where the Shanghai communique was signed, at the Jinjiang Hotel in the old part of Shanghai. And what's important to understand about the Shanghai communique is that it is a joint statement by the United States and by the People's Republic of China. Each side makes certain statements, makes certain states, certain positions within the communique. China, for example, talks about its support for the liberation struggles in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. China lays out its position on a number of issues. The United States also makes statements that reflect its perspective on certain issues. But then there are also places in which each side recognizes and acknowledges the other. And the United States, for example, declares that it acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Straits of Taiwan maintain that there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of that China. And the United States government, and this is very important in the statement, it says the United States government does not challenge that position. It reaffirms its interest in a peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves. So this is a foundational statement for the development of the relationship between the United States and the People's Republic, that the United States accepts, it acknowledges the Chinese position, and it does not dispute that position. And it states quite clearly that this is a question to be resolved by the Chinese themselves on both sides of the straits. So that's something I think that you know, gets, sort of glossed over or ignored or perhaps willfully forgotten by politicians now. But that's the foundation. That's one of the key foundations of this. And this is, as I say, it's a joint communique. Both sides agreed to this language. And the United States makes these explicit commitments to not dispute the one China policy and to recognize that the question of Taiwan needs to be resolved by the Chinese themselves without outside interference the United States makes other pledges to reduce its military assistance to the authorities on Taiwan, and, you know, in other ways to try to advance a clearer relationship, a better relationship between the two countries, recognizing that the Taiwan question is an internal matter for China, the Chinese themselves, to resolve.
0: The issue of Taiwan, like the issue of Hong Kong, and perhaps some other areas of territory, that China insists are part of China are central to China's own identity. And it's explicitly been stated as such since the time of the victory of the Chinese revolution in 1949. And even in fact before, it wasn't simply with the Communist Party or Mao Zedong, it was with others who recognized that Western powers had come to China or Japan and Western powers had come to China, seized different territories that were part of China and part of that century of humiliation where the Chinese dynasties had been dominated by colonial powers. China was dismembered. It was not only occupied, it was not only divided into spheres of influence, it was dismembered. And so it's a principle, it's a bedrock principle for Chinese political leaders to reclaim all of these lost territories. How did China lose Taiwan?
1: Well, Taiwan, the island of Taiwan, was a part of the Chinese empire back in imperial days, certainly since so the 13th century or so, so a very, very long time, long before any Europeans came to the Western Hemisphere, for example. By the late 19th century, Taiwan had become a province in its own right within the imperial administrative system. But in 1895, when China lost a war with Japan as part of the settlement of that conflict, the island of Taiwan was ceded to Japan. It became part of the Japanese empire and it remained in that status for 50 years. At the end of World War II, when the Japanese empire was defeated, the territories which it had seized beginning in the 1890s, which later included Korea in 1910 and Manchuria in 1931, those areas were returned to Chinese sovereignty and that included the island of Taiwan. So, from 1945 until 1948, 49, Taiwan was once again simply a part Of China at that point, the Republic of China was the titular government of the country. As the revolution was coming to victory, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek withdrew their forces and occupied Taiwan forcibly. There had been resistance on the part of the local population in Taiwan that had been suppressed in 1948. Martial law had been declared, which was maintained all the way down uh, until the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, and so. You know, Taiwan comes to be under the control of the rump of the nationalist government, uh, which flees there at the end of 48 and into 49 and has maintained its control there ever since. So the authorities on Taiwan continue to represent themselves as the Republic of China. They actually claim to be the government of the whole country of China because they also understand that there is only one China. So you have the nationalists on Taiwan claiming to be the government of all of China. You have the actual government in Beijing, the People's Republic, which maintains that it is the government of the country and that Taiwan is also part of the country. So both sides agree that there's only one China and Taiwan is part. But the local status of government on the island has remained divided. Because of the grasp of power by the nationalists at the end of the Revolutionary War. And of course, that was only maintained through the military and political intervention of the United States, the insertion of American naval forces into the Strait of Taiwan, the massive military assistance, both overt and covert, provided by the United States in the 1950s the threat in 1958 by the Eisenhower administration to use nuclear weapons against China in the context of the Taiwan crisis. So the separation, the division which has existed has been something that was imposed. It's an artifact of history. But it is something that, again, remains to be resolved by the Chinese people themselves, you know, on both sides of the straits. And that is the official position of the United States government, as stated in the Shanghai Communiqué, which President Biden, last fall, reiterated, his acceptance of, his recognition of, in his conversation with Xi Jinping on the video link that they had. So this remains the actual legal position of the United States government, even though many politicians, including President Biden himself, but members of Congress and others, you know, that have made many, many very provocative statements about Taiwan. The United States has sent clandestine military forces to Taiwan over the last year. You know, it's a thing where the United States has a public legal position, but its actual conduct has been grossly in violation of that.
0: Yeah. So the the big story that you alluded to just now is that A couple months ago, media stories came out. Obviously, they had been leaked to the mainstream media that the U.S. actually has secretly been training Taiwanese military forces in Taiwan secretly and obviously preparing for a conflict between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China. Now, just to put this for Americans into some sort of both historical and perhaps a geographic context— Around the same time that Japan seized Taiwan in 1895, the U.S. annexed the islands in the Pacific called Hawaii after having you know militarily invaded the country. Now, Hawaii is a lot further away from the mainland of the United States than the island of Taiwan is from the People's Republic of China, from mainland China, a lot further away. What would be the impact if the Chinese government had secretly sent military trainers to Hawaii to help you know, organize or provide military assistance to those indigenous people in Hawaii who still believe that their island, their country, having been seized by the Americans, violated their sovereignty and that they were going to work for independence of Hawaii, independence from the mainland of the United States, many thousands of miles away. I mean, if the Chinese had done that in Hawaii, we would already be at war. It would not have been acceptable. Again, I think it's really important to put this on the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique into perspective. The U.S. says Taiwan is part of China 50 years ago. The U.S. no longer supports Taiwan representing China at the United Nations. The People's Republic of China finally in 1971-72 takes its rightful place at the United Nations. It's on the Security Council along with Britain, France, the United States, and the Soviet Union, one of the five major powers in the UN. And here we are in 2021 and the Pentagon having acknowledged that Taiwan is part of China is secretly sending military forces there and not just secretly sending military trainers, sending the most advanced weapons to Taiwan in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And at the same time, sending U.S. aircraft carriers and or certainly U.S. battleship groups into the Taiwan Straits to demonstrate that the U.S. had what's called freedom of navigation to go wherever. Anyway, This is the context that the American people only hear poor Taiwan is being bullied by People's Republic of China, and they don't know these facts. Right. Well,
1: I think, again, if we go back and we look at the Shanghai Communique, it again includes specific language that says that both sides pledge, pledge, commit themselves to conduct their relations on the principles of respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all states non-aggression against other states and non-interference in the internal affairs of other states. So, you know, having acknowledged that Taiwan is part of China, that the Taiwan question should be resolved by the Chinese people on both sides of the straits and made a pledge to refrain from interference in the internal affairs of other countries. This seems like a whole package of commitments that the United States government made in the Shanghai communique to keep their hands off and allow the Chinese to let the taiwan problem be resolved in the course of history and this is of course what the chinese side the people's republic Xi Jinping and others have been saying, is that this is a matter for the Chinese people to allow to be resolved in its own time, in its own way, not to be dictated to, not to be interfered with, not to be stirred up, you know, for scoring political points at home in the United States by American politicians. And I think that, you know, obviously this conduct by the American government, the actual behavior of the government, the rhetoric being deployed by American politicians is pretty shameful and irresponsible and, frankly, quite dangerous.
0: I want to go back to 1972, the politics of that year. That was a really dramatic period for the United States because the U.S. was basically losing in Southeast Asia. Both Nixon and even before Nixon, Johnson, they knew the U.S. couldn't win in Vietnam. In the spring of, or starting in the winter of 1972, around the same time Nixon arrives in China, the Vietnamese launch what's called the Spring Offensive, and their forces are pushing south. Their goal is to capture Saigon, and it looks like the Vietnamese are going to win. It really felt like that in 1972, and the U.S. started this carpet bombing of Vietnam that's like... Unbelievably massive, the worst bombing of the war. I mean, thousands or tens of thousands of Vietnamese were undoubtedly being killed every week as the U.S. drops all these bombs on the country. And of course, the Vietnamese were getting the assistance from the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, the two largest socialist countries. As a matter of fact, from the Soviet side, they were getting surface to air missiles and the US didn't know they had these high surface to air missiles these the latest technologies from the USSR and the US lost a quarter of the B52 bomber fleet that was shot down over Vietnam in 1972 and a lot of us at that time thought well the reason Nixon is going to China Yes, there's the U.S. is trying to play the Soviet Union and China off of each other since there's an ideological political dispute that is by that time degenerating in a state-to-state dispute. But there was a feeling that the Chinese were being offered a deal. You stop supporting Vietnam, and the U.S. will integrate you into the world economy perhaps, normalize relations, allow you to come to the U.N. And there was a lot of confusion and sort of fear on the part of progressive anti-imperialist forces that China was selling out in exchange for being recognized as the legitimate government in China. Now, I want to ask you your opinion on that, because the Shanghai communique says clearly that China stands with Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia and supports the provisional government of South Vietnam, which was led by the communists in the National Liberation Front, and insisting that the U.S. leave Vietnam. So on paper, at least, the, the Chinese are still standing with the Vietnamese people and the other people of Southeast Asia. Now, you were, you, in addition to being a scholar on China, you were also an anti-war activist. You were an organizer. You were at Kent State, in fact. We all remember that terrible massacre that happened in early May 1970, where students at Kent State were shot down. And just a couple of weeks later at Jackson State, an all-black school, another massacre of students took place. That was all 1972. And you were there, Kent Hammond, and I've spoken to you about it. And in fact, after the National Guard massacred the students, you were one of, I think, 25, the Kent State 25, who were indicted and you were facing years in prison for your anti-war activity. Suddenly, like, the victims of the aggression by the state were put on trial. And so undoubtedly you were aware too at that time of what was going on. The US is losing in Vietnam and suddenly Nixon who's bombing the hell out of Vietnam, carpet bombing the country, shows up and clinking champagne glasses with Mao, who many on the left had revered especially from the, you know, last years during the Cultural Revolution and the period of Chinese radicalism. It was very jarring. Anyway, what's your thought? Was the US trying to sort of basically sue for peace. In other words, bring China into some sort of diplomatic arrangement in order to save its own hide in Vietnam. Certainly the Chinese in their statement in the Shanghai communiqué show solidarity with Vietnam. I want to get your thoughts about the politics of 1972.
1: Well, I think when we look back to 1972 and what was, of course, at the time, as you say, kind of a stunning moment where the great anti-communist Richard Nixon suddenly is on a plane bound for Beijing and Mao Zedong, who, you know, we have, as you say, been inspired by many young people, radical activists in the United States, anti-war activists, but more broadly politically engaged activists. We had, of course, been looking to China as a, an inspiration you know, for Chairman Mao to be welcoming Richard Nixon to Beijing, this was psychologically a little challenging. But I think that we have to understand it in a complex set of relationships. Certainly, the United States had its agenda. The reason that the United States was willing to begin to engage with China, that Kissinger makes his secret journey there and Nixon makes this public display in February of 72, was in part designed to try to use the relationship with China as a way of intimidating or putting pressure on the Soviet Union. The United States still saw the Soviet Union as the principal enemy. I think that Nixon probably understood by 70, 71 that the United States was not going to prevail in Vietnam. And in some ways, the opening to China for the United States was looking further down the road, was thinking about a post Vietnam future and what a post Vietnam global order would be. And within that context, having China not be as much of an enemy, not be as much of an antagonist for the United States, you would allow the United States to commit further resources towards its antagonism with the Soviet Union. So there's a geopolitical dimension of it from the point of view of the United States. But there's also a geopolitical dimension to it from the point of view of China. Of course, at the beginning of the People's Republic, back in the decade of the 1950s, China and the Soviet Union had a close fraternal relationship. The Treaty of Friendship signed in 1950 when Mao Zedong travels to Moscow, the only time he ever leaves China. You know, this had been a period where Soviet aid to China had been critical in beginning the process of socialist transformation, of developing a modern. modern industrial economy that helped China to start along the path of achieving the goals of the revolution. But differences between the Soviet and Chinese approach to economic development and to revolutionary construction meant that by the end of the 50s, there was a difference, shall we say, of opinion, what we call the Sino-Soviet split. That deepened through the course of the 1960s until the point in 1969 where there was armed conflict between Chinese and Soviet forces at a couple of points along the long border, which those two countries share. In the course of that, what we seem to be able to understand is that Mao Zedong and others allied with him within the leadership of the CPC came to feel that the threat from American imperialism, Was declining, that the United States was losing in Southeast Asia, that American imperialism was to at least some extent kind of a spent force, but that the threat from the Soviet Union was rising. And so there was a shift in the perception, the understanding on the part of the dominant Chinese leadership in what they thought of as sort of the primary contradiction in terms of global affairs. No longer was it the contradiction between China's Revolutionary struggle and American imperialism. But now, from the Chinese point of view, from Chairman Mao's point of view, it was between China and the Soviet Union. And American imperialism certainly wasn't going away. It wasn't that the United States was no longer an imperialist country, but its ability to be a threat to China was now seen as significantly reduced by its defeat, its impending defeat in Vietnam. So I think that the Chinese were willing to allow Nixon to come to China. After all, it isn't that Chairman Mao or Zhou Enlai came to Washington. Nixon goes to China, Nixon goes and shakes hands with Zhou Enlai, a gesture as soon as he got off the airplane at Capitol Airport. The first thing he does is reach out and shake Zhou Enlai's hand, which makes up for the snub that the American Secretary of State John Foster Dulles had inflicted back in 1954 at Geneva during the peace talks about the French war in Vietnam when Dulles refused to shake Zhou Enlai's hand. Now the United States is going, I don't want to necessarily say as a supplicant, but certainly the gesture, the political theater of the gesture was Nixon goes to China. And I think the Chinese were willing to embrace that because They saw it as a way of shoring up their position vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. They saw American imperialism as a force in decline, and they sought to have an opening to the outer outside world, which would allow, for example, the beginning of the influx of some capital investment from both Japan and the United States. So they saw it as a moment that could be to their advantage, more so than one that was simply going along with American interests.
0: Yes, I, I understand your point. And, you know, some of the Maoist groups in the United States said they heralded Nixon coming to China and said, Nixon is coming on his knees. You know, this whole idea that the U.S. was now a spent force, etc. Obviously, if the Chinese thought that at the time, that was a miscalculation, because I believe the United States was taking advantage of the terrible dispute between the Soviet Union and China that started as a political dispute. And then, as you said, the Soviets withdrew the economic advisors abruptly. It was a major problem for china at the time china tried to overcome it by the great leap forward and other sort of mass mobilization campaigns to you know find other ways for the chinese economy to grow which of course was a priority for all the different factions inside the chinese communist party was how to develop how to grow the economy how to overcome dire poverty these were everyone's priorities even though they may have had different methods and tactics for how to achieve it but there was no dispute that this was the priority so I think that the Chinese felt betrayed by the Soviet leadership. Certainly the Soviet leadership put a priority on its own relationships with the United States in the end of the Cold War between the USSR and the United States and started treating China as sort of an adversary, you know, stop showing the same level of solidarity that had existed in the 50s and then Nixon, I read an account. It was in Kissinger's biography or one of his many books that he probably doesn't really write. He said that the Soviet ambassador in 1969 came and met with him and told him that there might be a military clash at the in the western part of China at the Chinese-Soviet border, you know, near Xinjiang, actually, yes. and that troops were amassed by both sides, and he wanted to give America a heads up, you know, that there might be this conflict, And immediately Kissinger went and met with Nixon and they started to think about how they could now take advantage of this scoop they had, this information about the possible military struggle between the two socialist giants to further divide them and to begin reaching out to China. And that's actually what happens. I mean, this leads to a lot of internal strife within the Chinese Communist Party. Lin Piao, the defense minister and the heir apparent, according to the constitution that was adopted in 1969, he dies mysteriously in a plane crash. Obviously, there was a dispute, perhaps about the decision by the Mao leadership to open up to the United States. The statement in Western media and the Chinese, I think, embraced it was that Lin Biao, the defense minister, had died in a plane crash on the way to the Soviet Union. Anyway, we don't know if all of that is exactly true, but Again, people aren't doubting it. So I believe the U.S. was taking advantage of the Sino-Soviet political dispute that was badly handled by the Soviet Union. And then also I feel badly handled by China towards in the late 1960s when they began characterizing Soviet Union as social imperialist, meaning it was really an enemy state. And that allowed the U.S. to then see China as a potential ally. So Nixon goes to China a new relationship does open up, and the United States feels, okay, now we have the two socialist giants. We can play them off against each other. By the way, Mao in his discussions with Gerald Ford, which one can find in the, in the files at Stanford University, Mao is now saying to Gerald Ford, you're just playing the two of us against each other, the Soviet Union against China, but you're not really a reliable ally, and so on. But, but here we are, can 50 years later... Obviously, the U.S. isn't a spent force. Right. In fact, the U.S. is armed to the teeth. It's sending its battleship groups into the South China Sea. It's trying to create a military, you know, First Island Nations line of defense all around China, containing China. The Atlantic Council, the so-called independent think tank, which is actually funded by corporations and NATO and the military industrial complex, they just issued a, a document called The Longer Telegram, modeled after George Keenan's The Long Telegram, which was an important document in the containment strategy of the U.S. against the Soviet Union in 1948. The Longer Telegram is this now fully developed strategy to defeat China. I mean, I have the document. Maybe we can read little bits from it. But clearly, things have shifted now where the United States... Yes, the Soviet Union is gone, so perhaps the China alliance is less needed. But I think the United States also felt that China would ultimately go the way of the Soviet Union, that ultimately the Communist Party would lose power. There would be an internal counter-revolution. None of that happened. None of that happened. And instead, Xi Jinping is reaffirming China's socialist goals, and the U.S. is now preparing to go to war against China. Anyway, a remarkable set of developments.
1: Yeah I think first of all I certainly agree that you know whatever calculus it was on the part of Mao and other Chinese leaders in 1970 71 that led them to embrace this opening with the United States, I think that they seriously underestimated the resilience of American capitalism and American imperialism. And of course, we need to also track that in terms of the emergence of the neoliberal strategy that Western capitalism in general has embraced, the rise of Reagan and the whole reconfiguration of American capitalism from the end of the seventies, the eighties on has allowed American imperialism to reconstitute itself and to, you know, kind of revive its position as a global menace. The complexities of the interplay between the United States and China through the rest of the seventies, the eighties and on down to the present has been one where at first I think the United States thought that they had a great opportunity to both open China up for American investment, American capital, starts going into China even before the shift in policies led by Deng Xiaoping, starting in 78 and 79. American investment starts in the mid-1970s, but of course it takes off dramatically with the beginning of the era of reform and opening that starts in 79 and 80 and goes on from there. And at first, American political elites, I think, thought that they were going to sort of go into China and China's economy would become more capitalized and more engaged with the global capitalist system and that that would inevitably lead to political transformation. You know, and they saw the contradictions in China that built up and exploded in 1989. And of course, they had their hopes up at that point, but that was dashed by the effective response of the government to maintain control. But they kept on hoping that, you know, on through the 90s, that liberalization, if you will, of the economy would lead to political liberalization. And the Chinese leadership, Deng Xiaoping and later Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, they followed a course that involved, as they used to say, biding their time and building their capacities, keeping a low profile, not being too confrontational with the United States and with Western capitalism. But now, as you note, Xi Jinping has become much more assertive, has become much less apologetic, much less sort of going along to get along. Although that's not just a change that's taken place on the part of Xi Jinping it is the Americans starting with Obama but continuing through Trump and now with Biden that have really made the major change in behavior in the relationship between the two countries it's the pivot to asia that Obama and Clinton announced in 2011 and the trade war that Trump launches in 2017 and the you know harping and continually invoking this so-called liberal international order, rules based international order that the Biden administration and Secretary of State Blinken have been hammering away at. These are the changes that have come about in the relationship. Xi Jinping is maintaining the policies that China has followed all along of of openness, of allowing foreign investment, of building the economy, of engagement with international organizations a responsible role in the United Nations and in other kinds of international activities. You know, so this trajectory beginning. In 72, but certainly going over these last 50 years has been one in which the United States made commitments at the beginning that it has not fulfilled and that it has indeed now violated most blatantly while China has basically, you know, followed the same course, but has been the subject of all this fantasizing by the West that it was going to give up its commitment to the enhancement of the lives of the Chinese people and instead embrace Western capitalism and become part of the American-dominated global capitalist system. That hasn't happened. That infuriates the American and other Western elites, and that is what, you know, drives their antagonism and their hostility towards China today.
0: Yeah, I want to encourage everyone to read this document called The Longer Telegram produced by the Atlantic Council. It is a call for complete isolation of the Xi Jinping leadership, trying to create splits within the top sectors of the Chinese Communist Party. It says that Xi Jinping's authoritarian rule is the single biggest challenge to the United States everywhere. Then, you know, when you think about it, China's defense budget is one-fifth the size of the U.S. defense budget. China's not sending you know, its warships you know, in the waters around Long Island to show that it has the freedom of navigation. It's not putting missiles at the U.S.-Mexican border or the U.S.-Canadian border. I mean, when you look at just the facts, you can see that China is not threatening the people of the United States or the U.S. mainland or U.S. territories. At all. But perhaps China's rise is creating an opportunity for there to be a second center of economic and military and political power in the world, such that countries like Cuba or Venezuela or Iran or Zimbabwe or the peoples in the so-called third world who are trying to you know exercise real freedom from neocolonialism. That they don't simply have to sit and docilely accept structural adjustment programs that rob them of control over their own economies. And that's structural adjustment by the IMF as a condition for credit and loans and integration into the world market. That's been the norm ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But now China, as a major power that wasn't overthrown, that didn't become capitalist, which has successfully navigated through all of these complicated international waters to develop itself economically and has an independent foreign policy, that's the threat that the United States faces. And I think it's really important for the working class in America not to identify with the government and the capitalist class that oppresses the working class in the United States, but tells us, hey, look, we're all Americans and China's a big threat and we all have to stand together against this foreign menace, instead of going down that road of following our own oppressor class, like workers in the United States need to think, wait, this government doesn't represent us. China, in fact, isn't a menace. China's not trying to export anything into the United States. We need to have an independent socialist view. I mean, this is the socialist program, an independent view. And to understand that what the U.S. really hates about China is that China is surviving independent of imperial domination. I mean, that's the bottom line.
1: I think you're absolutely right. The United States, especially since the end of World War II, has been, you know, was the leader of the so-called free world. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, has functioned largely as the sole superpower, as they like to refer to themselves. And China's return, really, to being a significant player in global affairs is seen by American political elites as a threat. They have you know, benefited greatly from the predominance of American military power and economic power. They have shaped a global capitalist system that is dependent upon American institutions, that is dominated by American institutions. You know, The ability to impose economic sanctions on people and governments all around the world because of the control of international financial transfers by the American government, this is a, an incredibly powerful tool. It hasn't in some ways always been a very effective one, but it's one that has caused tremendous damage to societies and economies in countries that the United States sees as antithetical to its interests, or at least not as sufficiently subordinated to its interests. So the United States has crafted this system of global domination and it sees China as a threat to that, as a menace because China won't accept that. China will not simply be a subordinate component of an American dominated global system. It isn't that China wants to create its own globally dominant system, that's just a fantasy that American power mongers in their own consciousness turn around and project upon the Chinese. But they do, the Chinese do want to craft a system, to develop a system which allows countries around the world to escape from American domination and American intimidation, to be able to pursue their own courses of national development without having to kowtow and toady to American imperialism, to American corporate and political domination. And I think that that's a very unfortunate way for American political and public leaders to think of the world, this kind of zero-sum game where if other parts of the world advance, it must be something that's going to hurt the United States. And I quite agree, Brian, that from the point of view of the American working class, from the point of view of the American working people, we need to see that what our government should be doing is finding ways to cooperate with, to collaborate with, to share with people in other countries, most particularly China, because it's such an important country. 20% of the human race are Chinese. We need to find ways to work together, to build a positive future, to develop new technologies, to reduce the amount of time that people have to spend at labor that is dehumanizing and alienating and maximize the benefits that a future economy can have for everybody, for people on both sides of the Pacific, for people all around the world, Asia, Africa, Latin America, as well as right here at home in the United States. We need a program that will build a better future, not one that's going to try to hold on to the dominance that has enriched a tiny elite here while ordinary people are dying of COVID and being evicted from their homes it's a ridiculous situation in america and this demonization of china only makes it worse and is an effort to divert americans from dealing with their own contradictions their own problems at home
0: i couldn't agree with you more and i'm glad you mentioned COVID. i want to turn to it as we start to wrap up here there's been media coverage in particular the new york times i mean I should say it's all the capitalist-owned media in the United States, but the New York Times in particular, they recently ran on the front page of the New York Times an article that essentially says that China's zero COVID tolerance policy, the goal of eliminating COVID altogether, is equated with Nazism. Yes, it's an expression of... The same sort of decision-making made by Adolf Hitler, Goehring, Goebbels, Adolf Eichmann. They even use the language of the banality of evil, which of course was coined by Hannah Arendt when she covered the Eichmann trial, the Nazi Adolf Eichmann trial in 1961. She talked about the banality of evil. I want to read a couple sentences to you. Can, this is the New York Times. This is not some small lunatic periodical. This is the newspaper of record. Here it is. The army of millions who enforce China's zero COVID policy at all costs. Subtitled, as the troubled lockdown in Xi'an has shown, many Chinese people remain willing to work diligently towards the government's goal of eliminating the virus no matter the consequences. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible thing to eliminate COVID. I mean, here you have China, a country four times the size of the United States, 1.4 billion people, had two deaths. Yes, two deaths in 2021, when the U.S. had about 470,000 deaths. And China, where COVID was first discovered, in Wuhan province, had a total of 5,000 deaths in the first year, in 2020, but they adopted a zero COVID policy. And so they've defeated COVID, and that's been a decision by the Chinese government. I'm going to read a couple of sentences, and then I want to read actually a paragraph or so from this article, because this is what the American people are being spoon-fed China's zero COVID policy has a dedicated following. The millions of people who work diligently towards that goal, no matter the human costs. So getting rid of COVID is a terrible thing because of the human costs associated with not having COVID destroy your country. In the northwestern city of Xi'an, hospital employees refused to admit a man suffering from chest pains because he lived in a medium risk district he died of a heart attack. They informed a woman who was eight months pregnant and bleeding that her COVID test wasn't valid and she lost her baby. Two community security guards told a young man that they didn't care that he had had nothing to eat after catching him out during a lockdown. They beat him up. Okay, that's the way the article opens, right? Here's what it says. The New York Times. China's early success in containing the pandemic through iron fist authoritarian policies emboldened its officials, seemingly giving them license to act with conviction and righteousness. Many officials now believe they must do everything within their power to ensure zero covid infections since it will be at the top of the agenda of their leader, Xi Jinping. For these officials, virus control comes first. The people's lives, well being, and dignity come much later. I don't get it, Ken. I mean, the people's lives, well being, and dignity come much later because the government policies have deprived people of catching COVID. I mean, how do you write this junk?
1: It seems like a, like an exercise in double think or doublespeak gone out of control. As you note, China has had fewer than 5,000 deaths from COVID in the two years that the pandemic has been underway. You know, it's a tiny number given the 1.4 billion people in the country. The United States, you know, is moving towards a million. COVID deaths in a population that's less than a quarter that of China's. You know, if there's a irresponsible system, if there's a willing you know, abandonment of people to suffering and death. It's here in the United States, our for-profit healthcare system that places corporate interests far above those of ordinary people has allowed this pandemic to run wild. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people being ill dying it's absurd and so to turn around then and say china which as the article itself says where millions and millions and millions of people work together to try to control the virus We don't want to be, you know, some sort of starry-eyed fantasist. I'm sure that there are problems. Of course there are going to be problems in implementing any kind of policies in a population of 1.4 billion people. There are going to be mistakes. There are going to be errors. There are going to probably be even abuses in some circumstances. That's part of just the reality of life, but to suggest that. China's campaigns to control COVID, to minimize death, to save the lives of literally millions of Chinese people. How many millions of people would have died in China had they followed policies like those of the United States? It's staggering to imagine. You know so this kind of propaganda and that's all it can be called it's irresponsible very cleverly of course the times has an article like this written by a person of chinese ethnicity so that you know it's like oh look even this chinese journalist is saying this but the reality is of course that this is just an effort to stand the truth on its head to get the American people to buy into a demonization of China, when in fact, the reality is that the demons are at large here in the United States, killing, approaching a million people, while our government has basically stood aside and allowed that situation to unfold. You know, China has worked relentlessly to try to control this, to save lives, and keep their economy functioning. Whereas here we have, you know, massive unemployment. We have people leaving the job market. We have people being evicted from their homes. We have people going into debt because of their medical bills, while corporations, pharmaceuticals, hospital corporations, insurance corporations are making mega profits. And our billionaires are seeing their fortunes grow, you know, over and over and over. The contrast couldn't be starker. And for the Times to try to promote this kind of, Basically, just straightforward, bald faced lies. It's shameful and it just further highlights the need for serious change in this country.
0: I agree with you. The Times article goes on condemning those volunteers and officials who are diligently trying to stamp out COVID as carrying out what's called in the trial of Eichmann uh, the banality of evil. The article says it was coined by the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who wrote that Adolf Eichmann, one of the chief architects of the Holocaust, was an ordinary man who was motivated by extraordinary diligence and looking out for his personal advancement. I mean, yes, China locked down Xi'an when an outbreak of COVID happened in December, as it did with Wuhan in the beginning of January 2020. But nobody lost their jobs. In the United States, 60 million people lost their jobs because the lockdowns were not effective. Hundreds of thousands of small business people lost their businesses. A lot of people lost their life savings. China's not like that right now. China, people are going to work, they're going to school, outside of the you know, temporary lockdowns where there's an outbreak. China is not experiencing what we're experiencing right here in New York City or in Washington, D.C. or in many, many parts of the United States. And to treat people working together, volunteers trying to bring food to those who are quarantined, for instance, as being part of the evil hordes that were noticed at the Adolf Eichmann trial, it blows the mind. And, you know, by the way, the Chinese media You know, they read all of this, too, and they're responding very, you know, robustly. And they're saying, are you kidding? You want to talk about the banality of evil? Look at American government. Look at American bureaucrats. Look at the people who run the healthcare corporations who would rather make extra profits than build, you know, equipment that we need or technologies that we need to keep safe because they don't make enough profit from them. I mean, the banality of evil is located very profoundly within the capitalist system, as were the Nazis. But this comparison to China as somehow being a Nazi regime because it tried to prevent COVID from killing, as you put it, millions of Chinese people, it sort of defies the imagination. But the fact that it can be done on the front page of the New York Times, Ken Hammond, shows exactly where we are at. When you're in the middle of a war drive, Every stereotype, every caricature, every racist image is made use of by those going to war because it's a policy of social control to get people who would otherwise know better to put their doubts and their skepticism aside and say, yes, we're going to embrace the government policy, which in this case is getting ready for World War III, major power conflict with China, the biggest country in the world on nuclear power. In our last minute or so, Ken, It's obvious that here on the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai communique where the two countries said, you know, we're gonna work towards peace. The work towards peace has never been more urgent because in fact, US policymakers are sending warships, they're sending battle groups, they're sending all kinds of naval equipment and air power into the Pacific. The so-called Asia pivot is really not a pivot towards peace, It's a pivot towards war, all the more reason that people have to take action right now.
1: Absolutely. I think that we live in dangerous times. American politicians backed up by this kind of irresponsible media are building up a sense of fear and intimidation amongst the American people, trying to prepare Americans to accept conflict with China, trying to make ordinary American people see China as an enemy, rather than you know trying to find ways to work together with the Chinese to build a better future for their people, for our people, for other people around the world. I think Americans need to do what they can to educate themselves about the realities of life in China. I think Americans need to stand up and challenge their government to be more responsible in its conduct and to reject the politics of hate and fear and instead embrace a policy or a set of policies that would be of benefit to us as well as to other people across the Pacific. I hope that the occasion of the anniversary of the Shanghai communique will give us an opportunity to talk about the US-China relationship, will give us an opportunity to raise these issues in public forums. And I hope that we can call on American political leaders to drop the hostility, drop the aggression towards China, and instead embrace policies that will you know, create a more peaceable and prosperous world for everybody. I'm not sure that they're going to be willing to do that and I think that we also need to be working to change things in American politics and society. But I think right now with the danger of war with China, the danger of American aggression towards China is so high that that really needs to be one of our top priorities.
0: That was the voice of Dr. Ken Hammond. Ken, we always appreciate your knowledge, your insights, your perspective. Again, next month is the 50th anniversary, everyone of the Shanghai Communique joined with Ken Hammond and Pivot to Peace and other anti-war and peace organizations to demand from the United States government that it end the drive towards war with China. Instead, peace and cooperation on the issues of environment, epidemics, you name it. The world would benefit from cooperation and peace. Certainly, World War III is something that must be avoided. Ken Hammond, thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation, Brian. These are important issues, and I appreciate the opportunity
1: to contribute.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at Patreon.com dot com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.